to uh, not even set out to go to the Virgin, but the Virgin had another store, and it was never because it was so large, I think one of the largest shops in Europe at the time. And it's uh, where Pride Primark is now, almost opposite Tottenham Road Station. And I walked in and I asked to speak to the manager and I asked him for a job. And obviously he got talking to me and, and must have asked me, you know, the questions about, you know, what I've been doing, etc., etc. And sort of had a, you know, a business studies degree. And at first, he, he steadfastly refused to offer me the job because he said, I won't stay. And I said, I will, I will, you know, I need a job, I need a job. Anyway, um, he gave me the job and I started as a, as a cashier. And, um, you know, one of the things that sort of stood out at the time was I was the only black member of staff except for one security person and um, the cleaner. Everybody else in the store was, was, was white or of European, um, you know, culture background. And um, obviously Linda was, was you know, one of my best friends and I um, then, um, you know, mentioned to him um, that, you know, my friend was also available looking for a job. Um, and uh, Linda shortly, shortly joined. Um, but her role um, at that time was even more pivotal uh, because of what she established in, 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 the, in the shop and that was rare um, across any other of the record shops such as um, HMV. Um, and I'll, I'll hand back to Linda to talk about what she had the opportunity to do and how she was a sort of a, a flag bearer really and a leading light in terms of that role. Yeah. Um, just to sort of pick up the, you know, the story at that point, because if you remember 1981 when we left uni, that, that as you say, a lot of turmoil, political turmoil, not just domestic, but international, internationally that was impacting black communities globally. One of them was the um, illegal invasion by the US um, army of Grenada. That, that was a Grenada crisis. Um, the, the, the Prime Minister at the time, Morris Bishop, was a prominent black activist. And that was prominent in the news because it was such an outrage and it affected us, obviously, as, as, as black people. So that was one of the, you know, it was, a, it was a time of a lot of street demonstrations and activism, which we'll probably go into a bit later on. But I'm saying that because also 81 saw um, one of the major um, atrocities against the black community, which was the New Cross Fire, which um, happened in March of that year. and. Um, you know, this week or last month, I think, we celebrated 40 years of the Black People's Day of Action, which was really in response to that outrage. And, you know, you can see the synergies within that activity and so many countless others that happened, you know, and the fact that um, Stephen Lawrence Day was celebrated yesterday and, um, you know, the outcome from the George, George Floyd murder investigation you know, it's kind of like a continuing, um, a continuing um, thing that you know <laughs> that um, has really kind of been at the goal, the thread that's run throughout our journeys. But that, that's why 1981, as June said, when she went into Virgin to get that that, that job, you know, it was a time when we, just as graduates, the, the world should have been our oyster. But yet still, we were having to literally scrape around the, in a way, any employment opportunity. And I say that because, you know, it informed I went into Virgin and was grateful for the job. So I became the first, second black person to work there who wasn't either cleaner or security, but was probably one of the most miserable sales assistants you could ever find because, you know, we hated being there. 
to for those reasons. But having said that, it offered up such a, an education in terms of our musical knowledge, just having access to so much, such a wide range of music and having carte blanche. And at some point I volunteered to, no, I, the opportunity became available to be a buyer, so, which was for the 12 inch, the reggae 12-inch and sofa, Flipso section, which back in the day, the 12-inch format of LPs was a big deal. And um, I, then I volunteered to develop the world music uh, department and the African music department, which was basically, you know, a dusty browser, which is the, the box or the kind of the frame that they kept the, the, the records in in a corner and, and, and not much attention or respect was given to it. So I kind of like volunteered and because of our passion for music and love of, love of you know, just the eclectic mix of music and, you know, wanting to discover more artists, you know, really grew that, that offer. And in the process established a number of supply chain links with Virgin, with, with, with suppliers who, which otherwise had not got into that intervention, would never have had that link with, at that time, Europe's biggest, um, not distributor, but definitely retailer of music, namely uh, Stern's Music, which at that time was in the street off Good Street in the West End. Another supplier that I linked was um, Gallo Music, who specialised in South African um, music. But between them, they really um, brought another dimension to the offer of Virgin. And because of our roles as you know working at Virgin, we were able to present and promote um, that music to a wider audience. A key supplier also uh, during that time was Jetstar Music, which was based in Harlesden. Um, um, Mr. Palmer, who was the co-founder, I think, of, 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 of that really uh, seminal um, distribution and publishing you know, um, platform for reggae artists at that time. So, you know, so therefore that's why working at Virgin Megasaur at that time was really key in our development because it further developed our knowledge and I'll hand over to you so we can talk talk about how you know we, we, we did that within Virgin Records and then subsequently after leaving that in our next employment and the kind of establishment of our sound. So um we talked about the fact that um you know Linda's family um were, were very you know social and had you know regular family parties which the neighbours got invited to and which you know the, the children in his family um, were you know invited their friends and from that you know um, family members Linda's family members would ask us to to play and it, it got to um, a level of sort of frequency that we thought we need to um, not be relying on the the set that might be at that person's home. Um, because it normally would obviously be one deck, and maybe um, you know, wasn't uh, wasn't easy to 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 maneuver if we're going to be at a party and to kind of keep it free flowing. So we actually made a decision to buy um, our own equipment, um, except for the speakers at that time, and to give ourselves a name. Um, and you know, the more you play, was the more that we we got requests. So it went from just you know maybe a, a little party in, in a flat to people asking us to play at their weddings, and then from then it was namings, and then unfortunately it went on to sometimes receptions at people's funerals, and it just it kind of grew grew from from that. We never advertised anywhere; it was just all word of mouth, and from that we also then were able to be um, a support sound system at various concerts, including 
the, the Mighty Diamonds, the Heptones, um, Baba Mal, um, who else, Linda? Abyssinians. Oh, yeah, the Ab- um, Abyssinians, and, um, you know... African acts. Yes, and also um, there was a, a, a group called, um, a sort of, what do you call it, spoken word and, and music group called African Dawn, and one of the members of African Dawn, um, DJ Walla, he asked us to play at the Africa Centre, so we would, we would play there on more than one occasion. So it just kind of, you know, launched launched from from there. And I'm sure Lindy wants to add. Um. Yes, I mean, I think what I would add is that, again, it's important to remember that, you know, kind of like after leaving Virgin, um, this culture was very important to us. Um, it kind of informed a lot of the organisations we were either involved in or, you know, the employment that we sought. So I literally took a pay drop leaving Virgin to work for an organisation called Obala, the Organisation of Black Arts Advancement and Learning Activities. And they were a seminal cooperative of black art practitioners that established the first ever professional gallery, I think, for the showcasing of African visual art in the Black Art Gallery. But they had a satellite of other offerings and, and activities that were kind of like represented a 360 degree of culture. So for instance, they had the Obala, I was, I was involved in establishing the Obala Poetry Theatre. So you had very much related to the music, dub poets like Linton Kwesi Johnson and, and somebody called Oku Anuru, who's popularly credited as being like the founder or the, the father of dub, dub um, poetry. People like Jim B. Fadiz, another seminal Jamaican performance artist, Sweet Honey in the Rock, um, poetry and music collective from the state, as well as the last poets, you know, some of the, ex- the existing members at that time, again, seminal group who came and performed in that space. So, um, and the reason why I'm saying that, this was all kind of um, uh, overla- overlaid by uh, an an education outreach program, because the whole idea about the ethos of Obala was about bringing art to the people and to um, begin to deconstruct some of the um, barriers that people, because generally black people didn't go to visual art galleries, but, and if it was, it was not presented in a professional way. 